0: Welcome, everyone, to Heroes of Gaming, the podcast channel that talks with the people who make the games we love. This week, our hero is a visionary video game designer and legendary programmer, a woman who has earned the high score in the hearts of classic and new wave gamers alike, rocking the world with her win in the first ever National Video Game Championship for Space Invaders in 1980, then becoming an author, an entrepreneur, and one of the founders of Interplay all before her 21st birthday. Her record-breaking career has never stopped as she continues to shatter expectations of what can be achieved, seeing through the creation of nearly 300 games with her 40 years in the video game business. We are honored to welcome one of the most influential women of video game history, the one, the only, Rebecca Ann Heinemann.
1: Thank you very much for having me on your podcast.
0: It is such it is such a pleasure it is such an honor. We are so excited. We are celebrating uh, International Women's Day today. That's uh, true. It is. You are one of the foundation stones in video game history. You know, some people have heard, some people have watched. I guess there's a new documentary out that you were in. It's on
1: Netflix and it's called High Score. High and Score released uh, August of 2020. Uh, I'm in the first episode and highlights my uh, win in the uh, Atari 2600 Space Invaders Tournament.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Your first introduction to the Atari 2600, what, what was that like?
1: Well, my first introduction was that I had a friend invite me over to his place every now and then and to play video games. And he had this new machine called the Atari 2600. I actually had a Fairchild Channel F, you know, and of course the Atari had much better graphics than the Fairchild. And he collected, because he had a very well off family, he was collecting all the cartridges that came out. So I went to his house and I played uh, video games with him, mostly competitive against him. Because for whatever reason, he had it in his head that he had to beat me. And I kept <laughs> slaughtering him. Of <laughs> choice was a game called Slot Racers, in which it's a maze and you're driving this little blocky car and shooting these bullets at each other. And I just happened to be able to figure out instantly the best bank shot and stuff. And I kept nailing him. Um, (laughs) He was like, I am going to eventually beat you. So every day we would get together, play an hour of slot racers where he would like win once. And he'd be cheering around, dancing around there. I (laughs) finally got you. And that would kill him like 10 times in a row. Um, (laughs) Well. He was also a member of the Atari Fan Club. It's one of those they call it the Atari Force. It was one of those where you uh, send in some money, and they give you a membership card, some iron-on stickers. But the real thing that happens is that they send you flyers of and advertisements of the newest games before they come out to the stores. Wow! Um, because he was a member of Atari Force or, or whatever they call their fan club, they sent him a flyer saying that come October of 1980, they were going to hold a regional for the Atari National Space Invaders Tournament to celebrate the release of Space Invaders for the Atari 2600. And he campaigned to me, telling me over and over again that I should enter the contest because I was shot at winning. Mostly because I kept murdering him. (laughs) Um, And I was really hesitant because I was thinking that no, Mike's... To me, my skill level made the game so easy. So I just thought the game was easy and he just obviously sucked. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. so it wasn't that I thought I was good, I thought I was average and he was the one who was below average. Right. I had the clue that I was an exceptional player and he was an above average player because of the fact that our skill levels were so lopsided. Right, right. Um well the day came, he picked me up, you know. He had a car. He picked me up, drove me out to, um, because, you know, this is a this is 1980, which if you were 16 years old, you can get a driver's license or order's permit driver's license. Um, So he picked me up, drove me to Topanga Canyon Plaza, where there was a huge crowd of people there. And you pay a dollar, which the money goes to charity, and gives you a ticket, you get in line, and then you go to the kiosk, where they then... Take your tickets, they ask you your name, and then the judge just starts the game and you play. And because everybody usually played the game for no more than 30 seconds to a minute before they were slaughtered, right? Um, they, you know, he's like, okay. And so I started playing and playing and playing. And after I cleared my third screen, he's like, hey, you're pretty good at this. Said, yeah, isn't everybody?
0: Yeah, right. So after
1: playing, playing over and over and over again. I was, like, getting really bored, so I just started talking to the guy, going, like, hey, so where are you from? What's your weather like? Yeah, how's this, you know, how'd you get get the job here? How do you work at Atari? Well, you know, that kind of stuff. Playing the game without even thinking about it, because for me, I was on autopilot. Wow. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I finally got, like, a little distracted, and then the aliens landed on me. Mm -hmm. So, I then look at my score, it's at 8,000-something, I was like, oh, no, you had 88,000 because you rocked the game over eight times. <laughs> okay, and of course, my, my first question to him was, oh, is that good? <laughs> and he goes, I don't know. And he then wanders off, and I wander off, because the, when he writes down your name, it's on a piece of paper that says, I competed in the Atari 2600 champion. It's supposed to be like a little thing, it's just a frame or, you know, whatever. I've since lost the time. But I took that paper walked away and as i was leaving the area some people from atari came up to me and said hey um do you mind if we don't post your score for a little while <laughs> why it's because you're like four times the highest score and we don't want to intimidate people and get them to not want to compete in the contest whoa whoa and i'm like oh okay, um, fine, I don't care. And they went ahead and just left the other people's scores, and they didn't put mine up there. It was about half hour before the contest ended, because it started like around 10, but it ends around 5. Mm. Um, so around 4, 4.30ish four around there was when they finally posted my score. But at this time, the, the line was already such that they weren't selling any more tickets.
0: Right, right. Um,
1: because they still had to run through the people left. And then it was like one person who actually was turning the game over as well. And in his particular case, he um, got around 40,000 before um, the aliens got him. So because when he was doing it. it was like, oh, it looks like someone's going to beat me. Yeah, like, right. Oh, like me. So, okay, there's the person who's actually going to beat me, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. well, he didn't get my score. You know, Atari then said, okay, then the champion is Heinemann. Who gets an all-expense-paid trip to New York City to compete in the finals?
0: What was that feeling like? I mean, were you in disbelief? Were you excited? Did you did you tell anybody?
1: Uh, well, for one, the only person who was excited was my friend. He was jumping up and down for joy, clapping, saying, "I knew it! I knew it!" You know, kind of like uh, in Avengers: Endgame, where um, Thor. Sees Captain America pick a mulliner, and he goes, "I knew it." <laughs> pretty much what he what he was doing.
0: Uh, um, from, he, Deuce it, it didn't
1: Really sink in. Yeah, it didn't sink in one bit because I thought, okay, so they took down my name, my address, phone number, stuff like that. Of course, back then it was a, the house phone number because we didn't cell phones back then. And we drove back, and all I had to show for it was just a piece of paper that stated that. Um, I won the contest and another piece that said I competed and that was about it Wow um, it wasn't until two weeks later I get this um, express mail letter from Atari headquarters that had a plane ticket in there um, and an itinerary saying okay be you know they're gonna send a car to my house on uh, this time this was go out there get in the car the car takes you to the airport and then the airport, Flies me to New York City in which then they have an itinerary and then they're gonna fly me back.
0: Unreal. There's
1: one flaw that Atari didn't think of until much, much later. What's that? A single ticket.
0: Oh.
1: Note <laughs> so my age. Yeah. <laughs> about that from a, a liability standpoint where you're taking an unaccompanied minor from Los Angeles to New York City. In which I'm going in a airport shuttle. So it wasn't a limo. So it was just a standard airport shuttle. You know, I'm into a shuttle with a bunch of strangers. And I get to the airport where I then wandered by myself to the gate. Which at least then you can walk up to the gate. This will be the TSA and other stuff like that. Right. I'm sitting at the gate. I get on the plane. It was a 747. That I remember. Because I remember how huge the inside of that plane was. Um... Got in there, flew me to New York City. And of course, when I got off the plane and they had the person there with the name Heinemann standing up there waiting you know, to pick me up, he then asked, Oh, so where's your parents? It's like, You only sent me one ticket. And they looked at like, Well, the other contestants brought their parents. We can't afford a ticket, a plane yeah. ticket. And said, I said, was, I was absolutely flat broke. I mean, our family had no money. They then got me in the car. And drove me, this time it was a limo, an actual limo, and took me over to the hotel, which is like next door to a 30 Rock. And then that's when we met up with the other contestants. They took us to an Italian restaurant. And of course, I was looking at all the other contestants, and you know, like each one had a parent with them. And I was the only one who was by myself. To which Atari was like, we didn't plan for this. actually had jobs and money and so forth. Yeah. My, I was estranged from my family at the time. So, at while,
0: 16, wow.
1: At, at that particular point in time, I had just moved back in with my mom because I'd been spending my life homeless for a little bit because I had to run away from home because of an abusive parent.
0: Oh.
1: Um, and I moved back in with my mom, but even then, we were very estranged. So, even if she had the money, she wouldn't come with me, period. She wouldn't. So ended up there. They took us to an Italian restaurant where I had a nice New York meal. They then took us to our hotel rooms and spent the night. The next day, which was a Sunday, they took us on a big tour of New York City and a big stretch limo where all of us were in there, all the contestants and their parents. So this one of those long limos. They could easily see like four people in there. Mm. And the United Nations building where we wandered around. They took us to the Empire State Building. They took us Oh you know, my God! Cool place, and then again, they took us to a nice restaurant. And I remember there they gave us espressos, and all of us like, "Hey, we ordered espresso because it sounded cool." We put <laughs> the espresso down, I was like, "Wow, well, that was a nice experiment." <laughs> um, but then one more night, and then came the moment of truth. They in the hotel room this time. It was an Atari Twenty Six Hundred sitting there, all set up for me. Wow! Did that for all the other contestants. So it was for me especially. So I played Space of you know, played it for like an hour, just one game, just played an hour. It's okay, fine. Then went to bed. Next morning, I then get up, meet up with the other contestants, where they then take us walking next door to 30 Rock, where they then had us on the fourth floor. And then they led us into a room where we had us each change our shirts because we had each wear matching blue shirts with our names on the back.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: Space Invaders Tournament, and mine says LA, Los Angeles Regional Champion. They then sit us down um, in a row with our backs to the room, in which the room had about 100 to 200 uh, journalists, for ABC, CBS, CNN, which was brand new at the time. And they were all there to basically record the first, and this is what they call it, the first annual Atari 2600 Space Invaders Tournament. (laughs) And when they it started as exactly 10 o'clock, and they expected that it was going to be sudden death. Because they said, okay, game starts, and the last man standing is the one who wins. Right. Start playing. I can hear in the background people saying, and now the player is going to do this, the sounds, the aliens are going to try to do play-by-play commentary, which after like five minutes, the guy realized that, you know. I'm just going to say the same words over. <laughs> this is kind of repetitive.
0: Right, right.
1: What happened next was that after 20 minutes, Steve Marmel from Chicago, the aliens landed on him. So he was out. Yeah. At this point, the um, the newscasters were all getting excited about this. they like, okay, first one down. Who's next? Who's next? Who's next? Hour goes by. Everybody in the back to like, oh, so hard, so, hard. so hard. At this point, it's an hour and 20 minutes in, and of course the people from Atari are getting a little worried, going like, are these kids gonna stop? <laughs> <laughs> um, because when you play the Space Invaders version on for the contest, you play game one, but difficulty B, in which the space, your, your base is twice as wide. It's a really difficult version of the game. Mm. And yet, here we are, four kids, All of us were showing no signs whatsoever of slowing down. And they're like, you know, all their people, the best people can only last me 30 seconds on the game. And here it is. We're an hour and 45 minutes into this when all of a sudden they made a decision in which they then have their judges just get up, go into another room. And the announcer goes up and so concludes the Atari 2600 Space Invasion Tournament. And I turned to the guy as best I could, um, saying, does this mean we can stop playing now? And, like, <laughs> yes, you don't have to play anymore. So thank God. And I just, just reached over, grabbed my cartridge, and yanked it out, put it on the console, and I'm like,
2: oh. And
1: I just sat back in my chair, like, I'm never playing that game again. <laughs> because it's like, you know, after, you know, I, for me only like 10 15 minutes went by i had no idea it was an hour and 45 but nevertheless you know when you're sitting there for an hour and 45 minutes with no bathroom breaks and you're just playing this game it does get tiring and mind numbing of course yeah the prize for the uh, contest was like fifth place you get like 150 bucks second place you know The next place was like more money Then it was like an Atari 400 computer Then it was an Atari 800 computer. And the grand prize was a stand-up Asteroids machine, which is worth $3,000 at the time. Um, I really wanted the Atari 800 computer. (laughs) I really wanted it. So I already knew Steve Marmel was out. So that meant that I only had to place, you know, I only had to beat two people. In order for me to um, get that computer. So they announced the guy from Dallas as the fourth place winner. Said, hey, that means I'm almost there. Then they announced Hing Ming of San, San Jose, San Francisco. He's the one who won the third place. And I'm like, I got the computer. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. And then they said, Frank Tetra of New York is second place. And I go, Darn it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when they went ahead and changed my life by saying, and now the world champion is Heinemann from Los Angeles. Uh, what do you have to say? And all these microphones shoved in my face, and I was like, um, "You know, how do you feel being the champion? How do you feel? How was your strategy?" And it's like, I don't know. <laughs> wow. Um, it was even a small clip of me at the um, when they were interviewing me after the contest because after they announced me as the winner, and then they had me. Go to another room where they had me change my shirt to this white shirt uh, that had an Atari logo on the side, but on the back it says National Space Invaders Champion. Wow. I had the shirt changed on, and then I went back out there, and then when they did the interview me that's on um, Netflix, I'm wearing the other shirt. Oh, how Cool. And they had me interviewed for gosh about 15 minutes. I mean, I answer the same questions. Most of the questions, I'm sitting there like a deer with the lights in my face because I'm like, I have no idea what's going on to me, and I really don't know how to process this. <laughs> um, wow. Of course, I was still disappointed I didn't get the Atari.
0: <laughs> of course, of course. Now, let me know if this is true because you know, this just seems unbelievable to me. You taught yourself how to program. Uh, by reverse engineering and memorizing instruction sets, Atari 2600?
1: That's is... all true. Um, what happened was is that I had another friend who I would visit every now and then who had a Apple II computer. Mm. And I would visit his house to play Apple II games. Eventually, by the, a stroke of luck, someone on the penny saver, which was at the time a... It's the equivalent of Craigslist, but it's in print. Um... And somebody was selling an Apple II computer for $600. Now, these machines were being sold for 1000 to $1,200 at the time. So somebody selling one at $600 either means it was stolen, used, or somebody rich just wanted to get rid of something. It turned out in this case that the guy was a business owner. He ordered too many computers, and he had a bunch of excess and just needed to get rid of them. Wow. So I lucked out, and I ended up having to... Um, carry that thing, gosh, it was a four or five hour ride on my bicycle. Um from it was near the LA airport and I lived in Whittier. So if you look at the map and see what LA Airport is comparison with Whittier, I had to ride my bike halfway across Los Angeles. That was about an hour and a half bike ride. But then when I finally got there and give him all the money I had and I got the computer and then I realized wait I got this giant box. I have a bicycle how am i getting it home and i had first walk it for a while until i got some plastic bags and, and kind of made a, a makeshift backpack kind of thing and um just attaching it to the bike first in the front and the back and i would only ride like a mile then i have to reposition it or walk or something it was just it, it just every single thing you could think of i mean i tried all like. First bags that didn't work, bags popped off eventually, then I had to just walk with the thing there and Oh,
0: sounds like a backpack. bear.
1: It was a bear. Of course, later on in hindsight, I realized you yeah, I should have just take the computer out of the box. Brought <laughs> a backpack with me and put it in the backpack, and then I could have easily ridden home without a problem. But you know, hindsight's really funny. Right. I was, I was just so excited. I had this box computer. So I got the computer, the box and everything all the way home. And of course, I only bought the computer. I didn't have any uh, disk drives or any other peripherals with it. I just hooked it up to a little TV and I was able to play Apple II games. But one of the things about the Apple II is it has a built-in disassembler, meaning that if you just knew the commands, you can get into the monitor, which is a command prompt for assembly, and you could just type in 800L to list some code. And you could see, at first it looks like gibberish, but then later on you could start seeing the actual code in the ROM and it became understandable mm-hmm. um i got a book at the library for 6502 assembly and within a couple of weeks i was actually writing 6502 assembly google after this my friend who had the atari 2600 i came with an idea that hey if i get an atari 2600 but then i go to radio shack and get parts i can build a device that will allow me to copy the cartridges so i can get all of this entire collection for the cost of just a you know, twenty to thirty dollars worth of computer parts. Unbelievable. And I built um two devices. One that would I plug the Atari cartridge into, a ribbon cable goes in the Apple II and I just read in the cartridge and I save it onto floppy disk because or cassette tape. First it was cassette tapes, and later when I could afford it. I got a floppy disk. Then later on, I would then have another card, which I just copy that file into the memory of this card. A ribbon cable would go to a makeshift Atari cartridge I made out of a Combat card. I plug it into the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Turn on. There was the game.
0: Oh my goodness! And so you're you're hacking this system. This is unbelievable. And so you were able to get this whole collection and uh, and practice and play and just enjoy the games.
1: And played yeah. uh, all create... the games. I played them. But then yeah. one day I noticed that if I pulled an Atari Twenty Six Hundred file into my Apple II memory and listed it, it made sense. Because the Apple II and the Atari 2600 shared the same CPU. So the instruction set was the same.
2: Wow. So you didn't have to create an emulator.
1: Nope. No need to make an emulator of any kind. I mean, wow. it just the code. And once I had the code there, I made changes to it, like I would pull it Frogger. And I'd say, hey, load A with seven stores in this one. What if I change it seven to eight? Oh, now the color is different. i changed the color to another, another number. Oh, now the background's a different color. So this register is mix sets the background color this register sets the location of the uh sprites this so i would keep changing like um it was like laser blast Frogger, combat uh, superman those are some of the cartridges i used to just change values in the cartridges in order to see what it did and eventually i mapped out everything in the atari Swift 600 because then i wrote my own programs which all it did was to say Okay, if I push the joystick to the left, does it change the color? of This, boys, right? Okay, now I know which way the joystick works, and this is how I can read from the joystick. This is how we read the paddles. This is how we do this. And I kept going over and over until, within a few months, I had mapped out the entire Atari Twenty Six Hundred to the point where I was making my own games. Uh,
0: <laughs> unbelievable! Unbelievable! And 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 after fast forward, after you win the championship. How did you do it? Electronic games is is a magazines wanting you to write uh, books. How to how to master video games, yep. and and yeah, you I just have cut... books on my shelf. <laughs> oh? oh, cool. Uh, and so, what you spill the beans on this on this uh, this method that you had of, of doing this? Did that set off alarm bells for them? Did they?
1: Uh, well, what it did is that.
0: Are you accidentally incriminating yourself at this point?
1: No, what had happened was at the time that they found out that he was doing this, this is already a time when iMagic and Activision were already well established. It's like eight, late 81. The issue was everybody and their brother was making a video game company making Atari cartridges. But the problem is, is that in order for them to make the cartridges, they needed to hire somebody who needed to reverse engineer the Atari 2600, or was an ex- Atari employee.
0: Which, and, which you've already done at a, an age where these guys can't even tie their shoes. This pretty isn't... much.
1: But the um, so the hang up here was that if you hired an Atari employee, you'd easily be either giving them a piece of your company or giving them hundreds of thousands of dollars because remember, back then a salary of a hundred thousand dollars is the equivalent of four hundred thousand dollars today.
0: Right, right. So, yeah.
1: you know, these programmers were fetching insane salaries. Well, here it is is this girl living in, you know, in squalor pretty much in California who the only possession she has is an Apple II, a couple of hundred floppy disks, and a couple of pieces of hardware. And that's pretty much all I own, that and a bicycle. So then they said, hey, um, why don't you come work for us? Because I told my friends at Electronic Games Magazine, that would be um, Arnie Katz. I remember telling Arnie Katz I did this. I set up a cartridge in which was a prototype of a game called Crossfire. It was a game that was released by um, Sierra Online, but they did it for the Apple II, Atari um, 800. But I did a prototype mock-up of what that game would look like if it was on the Atari 2600. Wow. Well, Sierra wanted to hire me, but I sent them a cartridge, but the cartridge got lost in the mail. Avalon Hill wanted to get in the game business, and Electronic Games Magazine gave them my number. They called me up, and on that phone call, they hired me on the spot. Wow. And I I was just turning 18 at the time. I wasn't 18. No, I was like, you know. I was like 17 and a half at the time and they then said job offer here's a plane ticket etc so i like, grab all my positions put in a big steamer trunk and fly to towson maryland and they, of course asked me how old are you it says, i'm 18 <laughs> um, but then again all the jobs i had before i had to lie my ass off so went on this one too um, yeah jc Penney at the toys area the gas station i worked at a place called electric planet arcade um i worked at, um, which was the other place? A warehouse, in a warehouse. Um, but every one of those jobs, it was like, uh, how old are you? It's like, I'm 18. <laughs> never checked. No, I had mm. social security cards, so that was good enough for them.
2: Wow. When you were yeah. working at a department store, did you, were there displays of the Atari 2600 and games that you'd yes. walk by and see? Yeah, were you, yeah
1: were, borrow sometimes you, I would borrow one, take it home. Copy it. Bring it back. Put it back. It left Okay. It. Never sold
0: anything. <laughs> Amazing.
1: It's very, very good at putting the tape back on. <laughs> yeah.
0: So so you uh, you fly out to Maryland and and at this at this time you're. Uh, your friends, your family—is anyone saying anything about your whirlwind uh, success? And nope, uh, nobody. Did.
1: I never told any of them about it because, for one, it was like I never really equated it as a whirlwind success. I just thought it was just normal living and working. Right. Um, I was, you know, during the day I would work at the warehouse, JCB warehouse, or later on I would. My big job was really the Electric Planet Arcade, where I was working as a video game repair woman. So I take the boards out, repair, solder the boards, fix them. You know, here, not bad for me um, teaching myself how to do board-level repairs.
0: Right, right.
1: Um, but, hey, you know, when you're working for a minimum wage, which back then was like a buck and a half, um, <laughs> an yeah. hour, um, they didn't mind. And, of course, at the arcade, they're saying, hey, the national video game champion works here.
0: <laughs> of course, right. Yeah, of course. You're a celebrity even, that, you know, in that – a universe that's that's wonderful, and yep. so you uh you go out to Maryland, and uh and what is life like out there? Is it radically different than LA? Is it
1: radically different? Um, wow. the, the culture, the mindset, the snow back to snow. I grew up my entire life and never saw a flake of snow, so when it snowed, that's when I realized I'm not living here anymore, I'm going back right.
0: to <laughs> Yeah, and it's tough,
1: not handling this very well. <laughs> um, I But I stayed there for like about nine months and stuff like that before I was recruited by old people, Time Warner HBO, because they were doing a thing called a play cable system Mm. where their whole idea was that they had the set top box. You can plug into your Atari and would allow you to change channels for HBO or CNN or whatever it is. But at the same time, you can then download and play Atari 2600 games. But worked on that for like about two and a half three months when they decided that they were going to kill the project because they had a projection that the atari 2600 market was going to crash mm. and this was before it happened Because you know it was a great crash of 83 but the signs were already visible in 82 you know anybody who really was not blinded by the idea of infinite growth
0: right right
1: because here's the here's the issue there's only so many people on the planet so if you think you're going to keep doubling your sales every year, sooner or later, the number of units you need to sell exceeds the population of Earth. Right. When you start getting close, anywhere close to the population of Earth, you already know you've reached peak. And all the other companies were not looking at that thinking, oh, we're going to make all the sales. We're going to make all the sales. And by the time 82 comes around, the market was flooded with cartridges, which then caused the companies, the stores to Discount them from their usual $49.95 price to Mm
0: $9.95.
1: And at that point, then by 1983, everyone was expecting Atari cartridges for $9.95, which at that price point, nobody makes money. Right. And well, one year of that, everybody started going out of business and this whole market collapsed upon itself.
0: So then, uh, you 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 go back to uh, you go back to California.
1: Yep, went back to California. Um, I then uh, told Atari I was thinking about getting a job. I said, "Sure, we'll have you come work for us." Went up to Atari, um, and they actually set me up in an office and everything. I was starting to work on porting uh, Robotron to the Atari Four Hundred. I didn't get very far because three weeks later they laid off everybody in my building. Holy cow! So I was about ready to make a deposit on my uh, apartment when I come in the office. I hear somebody crying. I never, I don't remember who it was, Um, but I just went to my uh, desk and there was an envelope there. Look at the envelope says, "Thank you for your service, Atari. Here's your final check. Like you know, this is like my only check." Yeah, right. But I then just just picked up my stuff, went out, which wasn't much, like one or two little items went back to my pickup truck, which is what I owned at the time, drove over to the hotel and called up the apartment building and told them, I'm sorry, but that apartment I'm looking at, I'm going to have to decline. I'm not going to take it. Wow. But I didn't have any deposit because I never signed the lease. And then I just checked out of the motel. And just that day, I was already on my way right back to LA. I was there so shortly. I do not even consider myself an Atari employee because I wasn't there long enough to do anything. Got back to L.A., and I called up a friend of mine who said, hey, um, I need a job. Do you know anybody's hiring a programmer? He goes, yeah, there's a place called Boom Corporation. You should go uh, talk to them. And that's where I got my first L.A.-based programming job, and that was doing Atari 2600 to VIC-20 conversions. I did uh, Robin Hood, Chuck Norris Super Kicks. These are Zonix games from KTOW. I was doing the VIC-20 games, and later on I was doing a C64 game. Then we started doing our original title of the day, a game called Final Eclipse, mm. and, which didn't ship, by the way, um, because the company went out of business. Uh, and it wasn't because it went bankrupt. The owner decided he did not want to do video games anymore. He wanted to sell, and I'm not kidding, popsicles at the swamp.
0: Oh, God. <laughs> that, is, that is awful. Wow.
1: So we were all sitting around the table going, like, well, we're all canned. What are we going to do? And that's for some names you may have heard. Brian Fargo, Jacob Fell,
0: Sean
1: Farrell, we were all sitting there going like, well, we're now all canned. What are we going to do? What the hell? Let's make our own video game company. And that's how Interplay was born.
0: (laughs) Wow. Wow. In this kind of vacuum.
1: (laughs) The way it worked was there was an investor, a guy named Chris Wells. He coughed Mm. up, I think, like like $25,000 or something like that. He lent it to the company. And that was our seed capital. We then, the four of us, set up shop at 83 Production Place in Newport Beach, which was down the street from Fargo's house, which is why we put it that location.
2: Right. Um,
1: but um, we then hired an artist, a guy named David Lowry, and the five of us essentially became Interplay. Um, after we sold Mind Shadow and Treasure Sanction to Activision, and I think we got 100 grand for that. We were able to buy out Chris Wells, so Chris Wells then did other things, and that was that. At that point, we were an independent company with just the five of us for a long time before we started hiring more people. It was like after we did Borrowed Time, I think, is when we started making a lot more money. And uh, we just kept parlaying it, um, growing our company until Interplay became the 500-plus person behemoth it was around the 1990s. Wow. Just incredible.
0: And what were the goals when, when you started, so those two games, like you said, you know, bought out, bought out your investor. Are, are you, are you all just sitting there in a room just assessing like, wow, this is some success. What do we, where do we go from here? What do we, how do we build um, what well, it became? No,
1: we didn't really think about that. Um, <clears throat> well, we, we just simply did what we would have probably done for free if we had basic income or something like that. I mean, right. I know for a fact that I look at my old paychecks back then I was being paid pittance I mean it was well under the uh, minimum wage but then again I had stock in the company so back in the 90s when MCA made an investment into Interplay I actually sold some of my stock and it's the money I later on used to fund Logicware because it was a substantial amount of money right. right. while my first years at Interplay was I was being paid slave wages it kind of evened out in the later years when, you know, I was an owner of Interplay, so, you know, when we went public and so forth, I I had some shares. Nice. But then, hell, during the earlier years, it was just a matter of, hey, I want to make a game that was like Wizard and the Princess. Fargo had already done this game called um, Demon's Forge, Mm -hmm. which was a graphic text adventure, so I came up with an engine that would make a new graphic text adventure, and that's how uh, Tracer Sanction and Mindshadow were born. And those are the games that we sold to Activision, which then gave us more money, which then allowed us to keep going. Then I made Borrow Time, which was a more advanced version of those games. Then later on, the big breakout hit was Task Times and Tone Town, because that's cool. the one that really brought in a boatload of money until Bard's Tale came in. Task Times and Tone Town brought in carloads of money. It was Bard's Tale that brought in the truckloads of money. Right,
2: right, of course, of course. What a terrific name for a game, too. And you guys you mentioned in another interview that everyone in the office was obsessed with wizardry. Yes. You guys would bring it up and you, you wanted to take your own stab at your at it. Yep. Uh, yeah.
1: We were playing wizardry. We liked playing it. And that's how Bardscale was kind of born. Um, was, that, was it, it of- an
2: obsession until that point where you guys no, like, oh, we can't wait.
1: It's just that I like playing wizardry. Mm-hmm. i remember playing it and legacy of lily gauman the knight of diamonds um and of course waiting like everyone else for a return of <laughs> word because that one took years to make or some goofy amount of time but
0: <laughs> you build out bard's tale what was that initial playthrough like with uh with people when they, when you saw them play it
1: Oh, they, they love it, especially the fact the game ran so much faster than Wizardry, because Wizardry was written in Pascal on the Apple II, so it was all interpreted. And you can actually see the lines drawing where this one was instant and all the walls were actual bitmap art and um, you know, a lot more levels, lot more grinding, more colorful. Um, and of course then when I did the two GS versions, you know, adding in the music and sound and the actual sound effects for the monsters and things. It just made it a huge experience. And just watching people play it, and they love it. Even to this day, people are like, the two GS versions, the best version of Bard's Tale. Bard's Tale 1 and 2.
2: Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah. What Was it 2 or 3 that you were able to hire Michael Stackpole? It
1: was <laughs> number 3. Um, my, number 1 and 2, the game design was primarily Michael Cranford. Uh, but when Bard's Tale 2 was completed, Cranford had a falling out with Interplay. And as a result, he was shown the door. And at that point, um, as far as Interplay was concerned, the Bardstale franchise was dead. Mm. Um, they were actually never going to do another Bardstale again. But then I stepped up saying, look, I already have this engine I did for the 2GS version. I want to use that engine to make a brand new game. And then we brought in Michael Stackpole, um, who happens to be uh, the roommates of my now wife, um, <laughs> To, you know, come in and actually write the scenario While I go in and design the game and all, all the other stuff with it. And that was our entire team. It was just four of us. I had a personal friend, a guy named Kurt Heiden, who I already knew was doing music. So I had him, brought him on to do the music soundtrack for the game, which included even the Apple II. Because I made a music driver on the Apple II that required no hardware where I could play two, uh, two-tone harmonies.
0: Oh, that's fantastic.
1: Um, so all these things. Now, of course, when I was creating all this stuff, Interplay was really focusing all their energies, thinking Wasteland was going to be the game that was going to set the, you know, the new genre that everyone wants post-nuclear and so mm-hmm. forth. You know, everybody's tired of fantasy. But when Bard's Tale three with a team of four and uh, Wasteland with a team of like twelve, all the sales went to Bard's Tale three. That's and fantastic. Wasteland was not a flop. I will tell you that it was not a flop, oh. but it wasn't anywhere close to a bigger hit as Barstail 3. Now,
2: mm. well, what was studio life like? You were creating routines. You came up with Quick Draw. Yeah. You that was the there. art tool. When you were making these, were they bringing people into the studio to start creating artwork and sound, or was that all hired outsourced?
1: No, I just did
2: you were making the graphics
1: no the graphics were actually done by at the time the artist was taught camasta but just one guy and um, i made the tools and what happens is that i would be working with him asking him hey you're an artist what would make would it what could i do to this program to make it better for you it says well i want to be able to do the controls with my graphics tablet." so i i made the art tool specifically to make an artist's jobs easier. That's one reason wow. why the games, the uh, Quick Draw, was all uh, graphical. Um, there was no text input at all. You, you started and it looked like, uh, remember how Mac Paint came around? Well, mm-hmm. Quick Draw, which is the name of my art program, I invented that in 1982. And I wasn't driving with a mouse, I was driving on the Apple graphics tablet, because the mice weren't a thing yet. But it was the same thing. You would take the tablet, Touch one area, draw a circle. By it, the thing would actually draw the circle for you. You touch areas to flood fill with colors. There's a whole palette would just pop up, and with a pop-up menu, you go and select what color you wanted. You can just and it shows you the colors. And this is on an Apple II with 64k of uh, RAM, and was doing this all. And even had the ability for you to do undo several levels back.
0: Oh wow! Uh,
1: so they're huge because like, he would say like I would make a mistake, and says okay, yeah, yeah. I'll put an undo. So if you had an extended memory card, what it was every time that you did an art command, I would save the image. And then every time you back it, I just revert the images back about eight or nine images back. So then therefore, because he would like do mistake. Oh shoot, back up, back up, do the art, back up, art, art. And with that, he was able to do all the art so quickly. And that's why one person was able to do all Mm. the art parts till three, and then later on, Dragon Wars, because wow. the tool was that powerful. And it was not, it was because I was actually listening to the artist and designing the tool for an artist, not for a programmer.
2: That's amazing. The benefit of a smaller company. And incredible. Well, it's a Someone...
1: benefit of a smaller company, it's a benefit of somebody who just doesn't give a shit about what the CEO said. Because <laughs> the CEO kept coming to me and saying, I want this, I want that. And I said, sure, sure. And we completely ignore him. <laughs> horrible, <laughs> and it's like, no, that's a stupid idea. No, it's a stupid idea. But I would tell him to say, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. And he leaves like, I'm not doing it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the cover of Wasteland, uh, Michael Stackpole is on there. Yes, and he's there. They're all holding guns, my guns that you pre. That's amazing.
1: <laughs> they're my guns. <laughs> what was that? I'm about? a sharpshooter. Oh, One wow. of my guns.
2: I hope I hope we're not offending you in any way. We're staying on your good side. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to be caught in their crosshairs. That's for yeah,
1: sure. Yeah, there was a 12-gauge shotgun. It was an AR-15. That's when one Alan Pavlish was holding. Now, there <laughs> were some guns in that photo shoot that were just props, that they were literally pieces of rubber or something like that. Yeah. But like the AR-15, that, um, um, it was an AR-15 h Delta that um, Alan Pavlish was holding, and that was my gun. Wow, now, wow. I didn't trust these idiots with those guns, so I removed the firing pins on all of them before I gave Everyone <laughs> so Every smart. one of those guns was incapable of firing a bullet.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. So, all those tough guys that are holding guns that are demilitarized, that's that's great.
1: Just that I didn't want anybody to be stupid enough to put a bullet. Now, granted, I did give many bullets, but I didn't want to trust them, period. Um, so, I yanked out the firing pins and, and made certain, you know, I. Did gunsmithing. so I yanked up fire and made every one of them utterly capable of firing. Um, but they could still you could still put the clips in, and you know, also take a clip. It's an empty clip, of course. Put yeah. it in there, cock it. But even if you had a bullet in there, click the um, pull the trigger, it would do nothing. Do nothing. Um, because you know I didn't trust any of these guys. To, you know, hold, and of course, once I got the guns back, it took me like about three days to clean them because <laughs> I don't know where they were in the desert, but man. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, they, they,
2: actually, they actually shot that in the desert. Why? What made you guys decide to do a photo shoot? Because all the Bardstales and Dragon Wars were all painted covers. At what point were you like, yeah, let's just take a picture?
1: Interplay was betting the farm on Wasteland being the game, the right. one that's going to make all the money. So, therefore, with the case of Bardstale, we just hired an artist for like about 500 bucks to do the new painting. You know, now of course, with the painting for five hundred bucks, you just get the rights to the painting. You actually own the painting. Um, but you know, at those time, at that time, it said about 5, 500 bucks. Now for um, Dragon Wars, we had to pay five thousand dollars for Boris Vallejo. But mm-hmm. that's because we're not paying for brand X, which is what we did for um, Artsdale. We paid for you know Boris Vallejo.
2: But- I remember that box at CompUSA. I-
1: oh yeah. That was the whole Beautiful. point. It was to basically draw you in to make you want to look at the game and maybe take a peek at the back and buy it. EA had several other games in which they took photos of the developers. Because remember that Wasteland was published by EA. Mm. So to mimic that, now they thought, what would be a really cool photo shoot? And because the game's all post-nuclear and everybody liked Mad Max, because that's where a lot of the inspiration came from, they went to a Hollywood prop company that actually rented them the costumes. Saw them wearing all these Mad Max things. Well, they actually went to a place, got fitted, put on these really dirty clothes, and um, made them look like road warriors, because it was all saying, make us look like a crew from Mad Max. And then you write them a large check, and then they give you all the wardrobe. And of course, because they needed guns, the prop department gave them the missing guns. Like, they said, okay, we only have, like, six actual weapons with us, (laughs) with 12 people, so... They got some rubber guns and stuff like that. They rented as well. Now, I wasn't there when they actually did the photo shoot, because if it was, I would have demanded they take care of my gums a little bit better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> but once they um, brought them back, you know, um, got my guns, took them home, saw how dirty they were. And it took me a couple of weeks to clean them all. Um, and, of course, I then to put their firing pins back in and then take them to a range to verify they all still worked.
0: That's that's that. <laughs> wow, that's an amazing story that's behind a, that cover. Yeah, it's <laughs> an incredible story about that cover. And uh, uh, sharpshooting is a hobby of yours, but I also heard a sniff of a whisper that baking was as well. Uh, my, a, d- my favorite. Yeah. <laughs>
1: that's
0: exactly. how you have kids. When ah. you have Kids, then uh,
1: baking sometimes ends up in your repertoire.
0: <laughs> but death by chocolate is uh is notorious that's that's
1: okay i can describe it very easily and by the yeah. time i'm done you'll probably gain a pound
0: this concludes part one of our two-part series about the incredible life and career of rebecca ann heineman please join us for some more behind the scenes chats industry talk and a first look at what her new company called old school is producing next